Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, after a crazy roller coaster of a week watching our U.S. neighbor's election results come in, it's safe to say we're probably all feeling a little emotionally fragile on this first Saturday in November. So I'm happy to share that I have only 100% great Canadian content to bring you today, starting with Alison Venditti, a career coach, HR expert, and pay transparency advocate. Allison is adamant that women do not need another survey and that the time for action and helping women through this pandemic was yesterday. She joins me to share exactly what companies and the governments need to do to help. And it starts by not asking women to carry any more of the load for them. Anne Brody is keeping us all going with more movies and TV shows, including two from the beloved Ron Howard this week, a crime thriller with Kevin Costner and Diane Lane called Let Him Go, and the Southwesterlies with Orla Brady. Speaking of screen time, it's a hot topic and the cause of family battles everywhere. With kids staying home and parents trying to get work done and get dinner on the table, screen time for children and teenagers has skyrocketed. And even the experts on the topic are having a hard time coping. Jess Haynes is the co-director of the Guelph Family Health Study. She joins me to discuss and to share details on the new CBC Nature of Things, Screens versus Kids, which airs on November 13th at 9 p.m. If you've ever worried about being called a fraud or if you have the skills to, to deserve the job you have, then welcome to the Imposter Syndrome Club, comprised of about 70% of the population. BBG Hiley is the founder of Speakeasy.Work, a career management and personal branding consultancy firm that helps women break free of imposter syndrome and own their voice. She has some solid words of wisdom for women currently questioning their worth. Allie Payne, our resident expert on all things teen, joins me to tell you it is not in your kid's head. Your teens are struggling with some real problems, and she wants you to step back and reevaluate how you're having this discussion with them. Finally, it's been a long time since we've highlighted a Canadian music artist on what she said, but in the week leading up to Remembrance Day, I'm so happy to share my interview with 14-year-old Ainsley McGuinness, who wrote The Hero in You for Master Corporal Mike Troner, who is a dedicated Padawawa veteran who lost both his legs in Afghanistan in 2008 and is a friend and neighbor to her family. We close the show out with her touching tribute to him. It's another full week here at What She Said, so let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. after week for the last seven months, we've shared data and surveys on what she said that show that women are being disproportionately affected by this pandemic and carrying the heaviest load. 
Allison Venditti says, enough. It's time for action, not another survey. A career coach, HR expert, and pay transparency advocate with over 15 years of experience creating programs, policy, and change for dozens of companies and hundreds of individuals. She is the founder of Moms at Work by Career Love, a community and advocacy organization dedicated to supporting working mothers. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So you first came to my attention, actually, I read an article on Medium, and you used some rather salty language that we cannot share on the radio. <laughs> but to put it mildly, you're pretty angry about this. So what, what prompted you to write this article? <sighs> So uh, in, in the line of work, so I've done advocacy in, in women's spaces for a long time and the pandemic did a complete and massive shift for the difficulty that working women all already had. Um, and we were sort of holding it together at the beginning. Um, and a couple months in then, the same sort of things were happening. I was seeing survey after survey after survey. They're, they're devoting time in newspapers. They're devoting resources. A lot of money goes into these surveys. Um, and I sort of, just like in every other piece, I was like, when is the change going to come? When is that money going to be put into doing something that is going to help me? And it just never had. And after, you know, working from home with a kid on top of me or whatever, it's like, I think it was like 1030 at night. I, I made something because I was like, people aren't listening. So I've written and talked to the news and whatever. And I'm like, until I get angry, people aren't going to listen. And that's what I did. I just got, I just lost it. <laughs> it, it. It feels like that, you know, it reminds me of, you know, sometimes with your kids, it's like, you don't listen to me until I yell at you. <laughs> uh, so we're sort of at that stage, I think, for a lot of women, we're frustrated, we're tired, we're sick of hearing the surveys. So let's talk about some of those um, steps then that we should be taking immediately. So what should we be doing? Um, maybe let's start with um, personally, what should women be doing? So personally, from my stance is, is like to, to get involved in organizations, get involved, you know, like Moms at Work is a great platform. Um, and, and our goal is to like connect with people who are the change makers. So we have a partnership with the Vanier Institute, which is a research organization that works a lot with the federal and provincial government. Um, they do some surveys, uh, but they also do like discussion roundtables. And it's very important for me that like a lot of the surveys are surveying women who are um, disproportionately like quite privileged. So there's not a lot of work around single parents, frontline workers, you know, women of color, like it's just not being seen. And the Vanier Institute does a lot of work around that. So the first thing you do is sort of get like a knowledge base. So a lot of the group members are like, wow, I didn't know all of how pay transparency impacts this, how, like what sort of resources they can bring to their employers to sort of help working parents because like it really, you know, from an individual standpoint, I'm like enough, stop asking working mothers to do more. Do not send me a survey. Do not ask me like, like what to do, which is happening in organizations. They're asking parents, they're like, well, we don't know. Can you like give us some ideas? It's like, no, no, I can't. I'm very busy right now. Like, please. Right. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're okay. all struggling and you're asking us to do more work. Yeah. For free, by the way, for like, this is unpaid. Like this is just being tacked onto your normal job and, and surveys. Like they're not offering you any money. Like they're asking you to take a half hour survey. Be like, I'd like to be paid for that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So you want women to know then that they can affect some serious change yeah. um, and to not, you know, just sit back and hope it'll happen to get involved. Right. Right. Okay, so um, 
so if we want to go out and make change aside from being in these groups, yep. who should we be talking to? Your employers. Okay. Like front and center, it's like this has laid bare, like no one can hide anymore, right? Like I remember when I first started working with kids, I'm like, I wouldn't put pictures up of my kids on my desk. I didn't want people to discriminate against me because I had a family. Like, and the, the, the wage gap is not a women wage gap, by the way, it's a motherhood wage gap. So typically women who are childless um, run a pretty close paramp, like pretty close to what men make. And when you have kids, um, it's about an average of 5% per child. If you wow. believe that. Yeah. So it's the, so I like, I'm adamant. I'm like, this is not a gender pay gap. This is a motherhood pay gap because men, when they have children also get what's called a fatherhood bonus. This is a, an unwritten. Oh, and, and it's very well written. Right. Like, so there's lots of papers about this where they, where they look at how much working women make and then what happens after they have children and they do the same. They were shocked, though, about like the fatherhood bonus that men make more money because they're seen as more stable. They're seen as being the provider. Um, so there's an impetus to like pay them more. So that just widens it like post kids. Um, but when I say things that you can do for your company, um, you know, I've worked with lots of organizations. I'm like, some of these things are really simple. So the biggest lack in for companies during the pandemic has been lack of communication. So you're already feeling vulnerable. You don't want to have to ask for an afternoon off. You don't want to have to ask for the accommodation. Like you're already feeling vulnerable at your job anyway. Um, there should be a very clearly laid out structure for who you need to talk to. They should come up with the things you can ask for. Fridays off, four day weeks, um, flex time. Like there should be a list so that you don't have to beg for it. And the other thing that companies need to do is they need to be able to like direct people to all of these programs and funds that are available for working women. I work with women who don't know that the number of hours for maternity leave has dropped to 120. Like this is significant, right? Like so that you don't need to have the same things, but there's lots of programs. If your child is sick, you can apply for benefits. If you're taking care of someone with COVID, you can apply for benefits and employers need to step up their game and know about these programs and policies, whether they need to do the research or they need to hire someone, but they're out there to help us and people don't know they exist. Okay, that's excellent. So one of the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, we talk about this in pre-interview is, is the need for support. Successful right. people have support. Yep. So, and you know, as a single mom, I can tell yep. you right now that that is something that I am lacking in a big right. way. And so where do you, where do you go get those things? So in terms of, so some of the employers that I work with, they were like, oh, how do we support people? I'm like, you give them a thousand dollars. That's it, right? Like you give them the money so that they can figure out. And even if you have parents who are supporting you or whatever, like I know lots of people whose uh, parents are doing things like it, you should not direct people to like how they get the, the support they need, but you need to provide them with the resources. So in terms of employers, I'm a big advocate of like, like making the resources available and asking people what they need. Um, it's so hard in COVID that for individuals and companies, because everybody has their own comfort level. So some people are comfortable sending their kids to school. Some people are comfortable having a babysitter come in. So I, I try and be very respectful of that whole range that exists because I don't know your situation. I don't know if you have, you know, health issues that preclude you from some of these things. Um, but what I say is like, it's very individual, um, and companies and individuals need to be respectful um, because we're struggling. Like you're a single parent, like I have three kids, one of who has health issues. It's like every decision feels painful. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? 
um, because, you know, like, I, I'm not making decisions for me, I'm making decisions for my babies, right? That can feel heavy. Yeah, you know, I keep saying this myself is that everything right now, you know, all the stressors we had are now the same stressors still there under this big pandemic umbrella. Uh, And so every, you know, you make a decision and then you go, oh, wait a minute. No, we're we're in a pandemic. I can't do that. So it really does change everything. And a lot of the work that I do, I like, I, I tell the women I work with, I'm like, make decisions four weeks at a time. Like, you, you cannot anticipate, and this is the hardest part. I'm like, I, I work with a lot of women who are like planners, right? Like they, like I live in Toronto, you have to plan summer camp a year and a half, right? Like, so we're just so used to that. And it feels very disorienting to not know what November looks like, December looks like. And that's hard, especially professionally. It's like, well, how do you make plans at work? And so people are just tr- like in this like brace and hold position. And I was like, well, you can still plan, but it's gotta be short, right? Okay. Okay, yeah. so just quickly, we, we don't have a lot of time yet yeah. left. I, I'd like people to find you for Moms at Work because this sounds like sure. an excellent resource for women uh, okay. to find people to, to help support them and to get maybe some mentorship. Yeah. Tell me a little bit where they can go for that. So the website is uh, thisismomsatwork.com. That's the first place, and it sort of breaks down. So we are doing a free speaker series, so we're having diversity experts. We're having the pay equity commissioner come in and talk about you know, how to impact things. These are all free resources. So head to the website and sign up for the newsletter. I've actually put together um, job postings, uh, a lot of remote job posting, part-time job postings for women who have been unemployed. We've started that. Um, we have a Facebook group that's very active. There's lots of jobs in there and lots of support. And we get free talks from employment lawyers and accountants to help you sort of navigate these sorts of things. And we've even put together some resources for HR teams for how to support parents during the pandemic. Uh, all free, right? Like we put it together. It's just so that, yeah, you know, people just don't know where to start. So we've tried to put it together for you. <laughs> okay, wonderful. So yeah. moms uh, at work.com. This is moms at work.com. Yeah. This is moms at work.com. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Allison. This was great. Thanks so much for having me. Next time I'll Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody, who is bringing me one of my favorite people on earth, Ron Howard, Opie. (laughs) What a darling he is. Oh, my word. Has he ever, has he ever not been sweet? You know, I I think about him. I remember him on the Andy Griffith show uh, as Opie and then later on in Happy Days. And, you know, I don't think it's in his genes to be not not fabulous. He's incredibly sweet. And you have, so you have two projects from him this week. So let's start with the first one. Okay. The first one is Hillbilly Elegy on Netflix, which everyone's been waiting for. Gwen Close plays the uh, matriarch of a dirt poor family living in Appalachia. You can't recognize her. She's hunched. She looks about 40 years older. Um, Her daughter, Amy Adams, this is a true story, is a complete drug addict. Now, the story is told from the point of view of uh, Glenn Close's son, 
who in real life is J.D. Vance, who left Appalachia, went into the military, then got a law degree at Yale. So anyway, this is about him trying to get away. He keeps getting drawn back by his mother, who is so manipulative, drug addict, and he keeps having to go back to rescue her. And God, it's maddening, and it's so good. And this is a Ron Howard production. He says he has his family roots in Appalachia, so it really meant a lot to him. Oh, that's great. And Amy Adams, you know, I always think of her as that uh, princess character that she oh. played in that Disney oh, movie. Oh, so this oh. sounds like it's a bit of a stretch for him from that. You won't recognize her. It's just incredible transformations, the two of them. The other one that Ron did is Rebuilding Paradise. Now that too is based on family location because he lived there in Paradise, California, and it's, he still has family there. And of course, two years ago, it burnt to the ground. And if you go on Google Maps, you can see it. You can see every residential street is just gray ash. So he got footage from the fire. He went there immediately and shot it over the next year or so. Um, you know, it really, as terrible as it sounds, it is a story about hope and rebuilding. Uh, and the people he speaks to have gone through every kind of crisis you can imagine in that kind of situation. I mean, people dying in their cars trying to escape, just horrific. And of course, California's wildfires are still going on. So it's a real climate change situation. And he acknowledges that. That's going to be on National Geographic on Sunday. Okay. And I, I expect nothing but wonderful things from Ron Howard. Let's move on, though, because Kevin Costner and Diane Lane, I mean, these are two very um, hot Ooh. individuals. They are. And they played husband and wife before, and they, they do now. So there are a couple of farmers, and they lose their son in a riding accident. Now, he's married with a baby, and out of the blue, but a year later, the daughter-in-law and the son disappear. She's been dating a guy who uh, Diane Lane's character saw beating her on the street. So she decides to set off and find him. And little does she know, they follow his trail to North Dakota. And he's part of a, an incredibly influential crime, rural crime family. So do you know Leslie Manville, who uh, the English actress? She plays the mother. <laughs> this crime mother oh my god scares you to be this is the first time in a long time i've sat in front of the tv going no no <laughs> anyway they have they have no help the family is big it's all men they do just about anything to get what they need i know that sounds familiar these days um so but boo boo stewart i don't know if you know him he's uh an american actor He's just very slight and he's, he plays a hermit. He's about maybe 21 or something. And he and a horse are all they have to help him. So I just have to see how that turns out. It is unbelievably intense. Just shot in Canada. Shot in Drumheller. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Beautiful Drumheller. That's on my bucket list now. Have you been there? I have not, but uh, oh. I will have to check out this movie and it might be on my bucket list. So tell me about um, a teacher then on FX. Yeah, so Kate Mara plays a young teacher who's in a new high school who sets one of her students up to have an affair with her. And it's really subtle, but you can tell the little grooming step she's taken more or less after the fact because I, I couldn't recognize them. 
Um, and this is a true story. And of course, the woman was eventually arrested and put in prison. But you see how it happens. And it's really well done. And FX is providing resources to uh, uh, calls for help centers, information for survivors, that kind of thing. It's pretty wild. It's going to be very controversial. So it's pretty good. Okay, and so you have an, a whole list of, of more uh, movies and TV and interviews. Shows. Yeah, and you have one with um, Orla Orly Orla Brady from Orla the Brady. Southwesterlies. On it. she's so cute. <laughs> so that's up right now on what she said talk.com and for this whole list of these movies and more, people can go to what she said talk.com. Thanks so much for joining me, Anne. It's always Alrighty. a pleasure. See you soon. I've had some time to think about you on the long ride home. Screen time is a hot topic and the cause of family battles everywhere. Before the pandemic, parents were struggling to manage their children's obsession with YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and video games. During the pandemic, with kids staying home and parents trying to get work done and get dinner on the table, screen time for children and teenagers has skyrocketed. Jess Haynes is a child health researcher focused on finding practical solutions to help families establish healthy eating, physical activity, sleep, and screen behaviors. She is a professor of applied nutrition at the University of Guelph and the co-director of the Guelph Family Health Study, a family-based study following over 300 families with preschool-age children. She is also the mother of two, 11 and 13 years old, and features, featured in Screen versus Kids, a new episode in CBC's The Nature of Things that airs November 13th at 9 p.m. Welcome to the show, Jess. Thanks for having me, Candice. So I think the first thing I, I want to ask you, and I realize, you know, you specialize in this, but do you struggle with this as well? Oh, hands down. It is, um, as you described, I do, I look at lots of different health behaviors. And in my house, I would say my kids are pretty good eaters. Um, they're pretty good sleepers. Um, most times they want to move their bodies, but the thing we fight about fairly consistently is screen time. So I acknowledge this is hard for all of us, no matter how much information you have. I, you know, I think just admitting that helps those of us who are also struggling with feel a little bit better that even the experts are struggling right now. There's nothing normal about this. So what do you recommend then? Let's talk about some of the things we can do to um, get our kids off the screens. Yeah, so we actually looked at this to explore what do parents do and how is it related to their screen time. And we found some things that parents can do that seem to limit their screen time. So one is actually having specific limits, communicating to your kids, this is what's expected, this is how much screen time you get. Um, actually follow up and, following up and monitoring those limits also helps. Um, interestingly, um, kids, or I guess around lots of behaviors, the things we do, um, they notice those a lot more than the things we say. So the other things we've seen is if we use our screens in front of our kids, they're more likely to use them. So if we can manage, um, make sure that we make a big deal about we're going to put this away now. I'm, you know, I'm with you now. I'm not going to be on my screen. That seems to help. Limiting screen time at um, mealtime. Uh, so making sure your meals are screen free also helps uh, reduce how much time, screen time your kids have. 
And then the um, sort of novel or interesting finding we also found is that when parents use screen to control their kids' behaviors, so as a reward for doing something that you want to see, uh, see them do, a behavior you want to see them do, or um, using it as a form of punishment, parents that did that, their kids seem to watch more screen. So we're actually suggesting do other things, you know, to sort of manage um, their behavior and not use screen time. Oh boy, I am so guilty of that one. I, I, I honestly, it's the only currency I have with teenagers is that, is that data and Wi-Fi. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of parents are now just shaking their heads going, what else can I do? And sure, and absolutely. So I think it's trying to think about, and you know, it's interesting, I also do research in food, and that's also something we often, parents will say, well, I often use that because that's what's around, that's what we have, you know, what currency we have. But using other um, punishments may be, you know, uh, spending a little, when we do research with little kids, so spending, having a time out, for example, having some time in their room um, as sort of a, um, a consequence for poor behavior versus using screen time. Because the thing we think that's happening is um, just like when we use food, if we say to a kid, um, you have to eat your carrots before you can have your cookie, those kids end up really valuing the cookie more than if we didn't say anything about a cookie. And we think that may be what's happening too with little kids in screen time. So if we can use something else as behavior management, it might make screens a little more benign as opposed to something really valued. And does that sort of speak to that whole addiction um, aspect of screens as well? you know, that you take it away, there's this almost withdrawal for kids. Well, we certainly hear from parents that one of the reasons they want um, supports on how to limit and structure their kids' screen time is exactly that. That um, uh, Again, we work with parents of young children, but seeing the sort of reactions when you pull the screen away can be really difficult for parents. So um, by having sort of set limits, making sure kids know, um, families have also found it really effective to say use a timer. And so the timer goes off and now it's the timer telling the kid, oh, it's over, as opposed to you coming and pulling it away from them because absolutely it's something they value and they enjoy and trying to pull it away from them you know can spark that behavior that you don't want to see in your kids exactly and you know i think one of the things you've said as well before is you know is that sort of that modeling that screen-free behavior and it's hard for parents as well right now because they are working from home they are on their screens all the time and then you know they're decompressing by being on their screens all the things their kids are doing so it's really finding those you know, healthier outlets, I suppose, uh, for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, so doing our best. And you're right, the pandemic is a particularly hard time. So we're not going to get it right every day. But you know, I think trying to, um, uh, in our house, what we try to do is have some specific screen free time. So absolutely, there's going to be times we watch it to decompress. I'm going to have the kids watch so I can get some stuff done. Um, but also, also making, you know, this is actually a screen free morning, you know, we're spending Saturday morning together and there won't be screens. Okay, excellent. Thank you for joining me today. So if people want to connect with you, Jess, and find more out about your study or watch this episode on the nature of things, where can they go? Sure. So um, you can find out more about the Guelph Family Health Study on our website, which is the GuelphFamilyHealthStudy.com. And then the nature of things, uh, kids versus screens, which is fabulous. There's um, such great tips for parents. Um, it'll be on November 13th at 9 p.m. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Candice. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region.
Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. felt like you don't belong somewhere or if you fear your colleagues colleagues are going to discover you're a fraud and undeserving of what you've attained, you've likely had a bad case of imposter syndrome. Never fear, according to one study, an estimated 70% of us suffer from imposter syndrome at some point in our life. BBG Hailey is the founder of speakeasy.work, a career management and personal branding consultancy company. She works with women in middle and senior management roles, helping them make bold moves in their lives and careers as they discover the possibilities that come with finding and owning their unique voice. Welcome to the show, BBG. Thank you, Candice. I'm happy to be here. It's so great to have you here. Uh, I, I feel like imposter syndrome is something a lot of women struggle with. I mean, when I went and looked it up and found 70% of us at some point uh, deal with this, that's huge. It's huge. It's huge. And it's interesting because the last workshop I did on imposter syndrome, when I threw out that number, the 70%, I remember looking at the chat and everybody's, oh my God, I'm not alone. And so I was telling these women, you know what? Do the math. When you go into a room, and you're feeling imposter syndrome, do the math. If there are 10 people in there, it means seven of them, regardless of their organizational level, are feeling the same thing as you. So that helps bring us back, right? We're not going to lose it, but it'll bring us back a little bit. So is is imposter syndrome a confidence issue then? Is it a lack of self-confidence or does it stem from something else? It's so it's not so much a lack of confidence, but it does. It is interpreted by the people who are living it as a lack of confidence. A lot of the time, what happens with imposter syndrome is that it's actually women and men, because this is one of those. It doesn't actually matter what gender you are. Um, Everybody feels it in the same way, but it's the way that it comes out and the way that it shows up that's different. And it's an attribution issue. So women who are extremely accomplished, they, they know what they're doing, they're competent, they, they've succeeded. Usually they have like pretty successful careers, but they attribute their success to luck, to the team, to um, hard work, but they don't attribute it to their own competence and skills. And so after that, the interpretation comes with, I don't feel confident, I'm not self-confident. If I was self-confident, I would be able to own this. Right, I think, and I think that is, um, when you're, as you're speaking, I'm nodding and smiling here because you know, I, I, I think a lot of women in particular struggle with this. You know, they have the skill set, but they're afraid to be bold about that skill set and and to say yeah I, I have I'm here because I deserve to be here yeah yeah and you know it so we have to be bold about our specific skill set I think that's where we get stuck we're trying to take on so much be so good about so many things but when you focus on self-awareness and figure out what's your zone where is it that you are extremely good What comes with it is knowing where you're not extremely good. And so you sort of lose this feeling that you have to show up as a superstar in every space. I am horrible at planning and at follow-ups. And I used to do project management. 
And so I would have to, I had these project plans and literally it felt like they were a foreign language. And when I realized the first time I did a strength finder and I realized that all of my strengths, Candace, all of them were in the strategic space, the ideas, the visioning, I cried. I was like, so I'm not bad at what I do. I'm bad at this thing. And now I just delegate. Every time there is something that needs to be managed, followed up, I tell people I'm not good at this, have someone else do it. This is what I'm good at. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second then, because you said, uh, you know, doing uh, something to find your strengths. So what do you recommend women do? Where do you start when you want to focus on, on really finding out what your core competencies are? Okay. A couple of things. There are some things that are just very structured. I use Strength Finder, the Gallup Strength Finder. It's very useful. Um, you can think of it like an MBTI, but I think it's, it's more focused because it focuses on your strength at work and it's divided into areas. So strategic versus execution versus relationships. Super useful. The other thing that I have people do is think about the moments that they are in flow. Because we always think that doing something well means it has to be hard. It's the opposite. Doing something well is those things that are so easy for you that you're not even able to call them something that you're good at. You're like, yeah, I know I do that thing. It's, isn't it easy for everybody? No. Some people, it's super easy to do a follow-up. They can follow a, a, an Excel spreadsheet that tells them what to do. And for me, it gives me anxiety. So when you find that thing that you're in flow, when you think about how you feel in your body, when you're like, for me, it's facilitating a meeting. If you're like, huh, this is my space. I could do this all day. That gives you an, an inkling of your strength. Third tip I would give them, think about three words to describe yourself. If you could only have three words, what would they be? And you can't use one of those that we use, accomplished professional. Can't do that. Find your three words. And I think you have to be in the right headspace as well when you're asking those three words. Uh, you know, you don't want to be in this negative space and, you know, really using those words that are not maybe very uh, encouraging, positive, right? It's that self-talk is important. I'm so glad you brought that up. So all of my clients, I ask them to be careful of the words they use when they talk to themselves. You know, we say a lot that women are harsh with ourselves, et cetera, but one of the things that we do is use words that are very difficult. So for instance, we'll say, I'm so stupid. And there's this sentence that says, your brain is always listening, right? If you're constantly telling yourself, oh, I'm so, so stupid, I'm such an idiot. When you go into a room and get triggered by people who make you feel like an idiot, for whatever reason, your brain is already used to hearing and feeling that way. So being careful with the words that we use to talk to ourselves is critical. Self-compassion is critical. It sounds like woo, but it is the only way to manage the process um, of, you know, succeeding at our life and our being joyful in our life. Yeah, I, I really wish people would let go of that, that uh, perception that these sort of things are woo-woo. It's, it's really not. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you say that being friends with your fear is a good thing. So how do, you, how do you manage that? How do you become friendly with your fear? Observation. Literally observation. And it's part of the self-awareness. Understanding what your triggers are. So when you and I were communicating and in our email, I said I prefer to be addressed as BB. 
The reason I prefer to be addressed as BB is because when somebody calls me BBG, it triggers me back to when I was a child and I had done something wrong. And my parents would say, BBG, and then, you know, get, get upset. And so literally I get triggered like that in meetings. And so it's about knowing our triggers, knowing what creates that space of fear and discomfort so that we can observe it. And that gives us a moment to slow down, right? We are in a, in a world and in a workplace where things are going so fast. We get triggered, we react, and then we go back and think, oh, I'm so stupid, I can't believe I just said that. Versus observing and seeing what's going on and being, oh, think process syndrome is here. Have a seat, I'm doing something, I'll be right back. Or with the fear, same thing, have a seat. You can observe as you want. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, but please feel free. So it's adding humor and compassion and observation to how we show up in the world and lessening the expectations. So how are you finding all of this now? Obviously, we are eight months into this pandemic and, and the need for you know, the self-compassion is greater than ever. Uh, how are you helping women right now? Community. Community. I'm doing a virtual coffee tour where I have conversations with women all over the world. And one of the things that keeps coming up as what is necessary for women to thrive is community. So right now I have a LinkedIn group. I'm training women on LinkedIn, which is a fantastic way to learn how to show up. And I realized that it's not about LinkedIn. It's about all these women together having these amazing conversations, holding each other up, and more importantly saying, oh my God, me too. They're not alone. They're all living this. And then the kids will pop in, the toddlers. My toddler is not here today, but he pops into the videos. And he, it's just, this is who we are. This is how we're living now. And let's do it as a community and hold each other up. Well, you are singing my song. That is what she said is here for, uh, is, to, is to create this community with women. Uh, especially, uh, you know, I've been hearing this since the first week uh, that we went into lockdown these stories. So I think creating this community is vitally important. If people want to connect with you, uh, Bibi, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm a bit of a LinkedIn junkie. So BBG Haile at LinkedIn. Um, my website is being revamped, but they can go on it and get um, uh, sign up for our newsletter. And yeah, that's it. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, BB. We will talk again soon. I hope so, Candace. Thank you so much. Joining me now for a, another segment to help parents and teens find a better way uh, through with each other is Allie Payne. And today we're going to talk about your teen's mental health and primarily how it's not all in their head. This is so difficult for parents because we knew our, our child when they were say eight to 10 and they were happy and relatively speaking, and they were compliant, relatively speaking. And they probably had some friends, introvert, extrovert, you know, some friends, and they did pretty well in school. And now they're a teenager. And it's like, uh, and, and, and they're saying, you know, they're anxious and they're stressed and they're all of these different things. And it's like, well, what, what, 
why can't you just be that kid that I knew? Like, what's your problem? What, what, it's just in your head. What's, what's going on with you? I am here to tell you that that is probably one of the most invalidating things that our teenagers can hear. I understand as a parent, when you're looking at your teenager, because you're with them every day and you see them in and out, you go like, kind of like, mm, you know, give them a little smack in the face. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get over it. Come on now. Because your life is really busy too. I need to tell you the truth is the child you are standing in front of right now, the teenager, is not the child who was the happy compliant 10 year old. They are not. They had this thing called the pituitary gland and it blew up in their brain. And that inherently makes them different. I don't know how you feel when you're having your worst day or just really struggling. And if someone came up to you and said, oh my gosh, snap yourself together. It's all in your head. Come on, let's go. How are you feeling? Right. You know, and uh, to be fair, sometimes that sort of motivation would work for me and other times it wouldn't. Yes. Uh, but a, with a teen in particular, one of the, one of the best uh, ways or things I've ever heard about a teenager and the way their mind works is that it's like they are driving a sports car with no brakes. Yes. And that's what their brains are doing right now. And it, so it's easy for us as adults, obviously, to look at what they're doing with our very adult developed brain and forget that they don't have those tools quite yet. No. And I want to speak directly right now to anxiety. So I um, have anxiety and it runs in my family. My son is diagnosed anxiety. I want to give you a sense for a minute of even though you may not understand or feel that your teenager is dramatizing things, particularly from anxiety. Let me explain to you for a minute. Let's say you're in your room putting your clothes away and your partner or your child, someone walks in unexpectedly and scares you. Like, oh, you know, that's startling. Like, oh, and for a few seconds after you realize, okay, someone walked in the room, all right, the world is not ending. Your heart is still beating really quickly. And in the nanosecond it took you to realize you were not at risk of dying, because that's what it feels like sometimes being startled. Let's say that's a 10. Let's say the being startled moment, that moment of terrifying, wah, is a 10. I want you to dial that back to about a seven. And now I want you to imagine living that level of fear 24 seven. Please understand that is not dramatized. That is anxiety. Anxiety, the definition is that it is prolonged, sustained worry. I have felt that. I have lived that. Literally fight or flight at a low level 24 seven. When you walk up to someone who's living in a, in a heightened level of fear, although you can't always see it because it happens inside and tell them it's all in their head and to shape up. So we just need to be cautious. We just need to understand. And with depression, it's like having your worst day where all those inner like itty bitty crappy club messages in your head, they're going at a volume, say if 10's the max, they're going at about a five or six. And they're going all the time. It's not something you can shake off. Our teens are not necessarily being dramatic and that motivation may not work. The only way you're going to find out is being in conversation with them by validating them, even if you don't understand it. And that's okay. By being there for them 
to understand that this person you're seeing in front of you is being honest, they're being true, they're being real, and they are not the person that you knew before. And we need to move away from that. So when a parent identifies uh, you know, anxiety or depression with a child, uh, two things I actually want to bring up. Uh, okay. The first is, what, what's the first thing you should do uh, once you've established that that is uh, what, what's going on? Uh, because right. we're not equipped, we're not all equipped to help them deal with that. No, no, for sure. Even if, you, if you've dealt with it in your own life, it's still different for you than it would be for them. So most definitely seek help. That could be a school counselor. It might be that you have a parent who is a counselor or, or a coach, or you might need to seek something outside of that. Sometimes there's really great books that they would prefer to read, but definitely not ignoring it and doing nothing. Pursue it at a level where your teen is comfortable and they still might not be, but you're going to get them some version of help and then see where you go from there. Then reevaluate, but you got to be in conversation about it. Okay. So the second part of that is, you know, teenagers are almost naturally uh, antagonistic. And even yes. you've, you've said, okay, fine. I admit it. There's an issue. There's a problem. Let's get you some help. And they say, no, I don't need it. Yeah. So that's such a wonderful point. When they say that, I'm going to tell you right now, because I've been that, I've been that teenager. I was a teenager who was supposed to go and talk to the school counselor every day and spill my, spill my guts. And I said a big fat hell no with a hand. Do you know why? Because I had no connection to that school counselor. She wasn't a bad person, but I just never would have chosen her. I didn't feel safe with her. And I wasn't given an opportunity to feel safe with anybody. It was like it was forced on me. And so defensiveness came up. And so I would say, first of all, instead of saying to your teenager, that's it, we're going to go get you help. We need to fix this. Very different energy than saying, I'm sorry you're going through this. I love you. I don't understand. And you are so important to me. I want to help you. What does help look like to you? Help them to empower to be part of the solution as opposed to feeling like they're being wrong and judged and now they're in trouble. So that's a different energy around it. And, and it might take 10 counselors, let them pick, because if I feel unsafe with you, there is no way I'm going you with there, going there with you to talk about my anxiety. Okay. Well, Allie, I, we, I, I think we could talk about this one forever. Let's face it. Anxiety and depression are huge right now. Uh, so we're going to talk about this. I, I feel probably again, uh, yes. but in the meantime, if parents want to connect with you for more great advice, where can they find you? Best site is on my website, www.alliepain.com on Instagram or TikTok at AllyPayne. Message me. We'll, we'll go from there. Okay. Amazing. Thank you, Allie. Thank you. Let me live that fantasy. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. There's no need to drag it on. It's your first full out war. What should we expect? We know someone gets hurt. We just don't know who yet. It's been a long time since we've featured a musician on What She Said Talk, but I am so happy that 14-year-old Ainsley McGinnis is joining me today to talk about her song, The Hero in You, just in time for Remembrance Day. Welcome to the show, Ainsley. Thank you for having me. 
So tell me, what inspired you? I mean, you're 14. What inspired you to write this song? Well, we had always been neighbors with Mike Tronner and his wife. And it wasn't until Christmas of 2018 that I actually got introduced to them. And my mom approached me with the idea to write a song about his journey, since we always knew that he was a soldier and he lost his legs overseas. And my mom thought it would be a really good idea for me to write a song about his journey and his recovery. So how old were you when you actually wrote the song then? I was 13. You were 13. Okay. And so, uh, and then you released it last year. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I released it the night before Remembrance Day last year. So how long have you been writing songs? I think I've been writing songs as long as I've been playing guitar, which I say started back in late 2017. And the first song I ever did write was about my grandpa, but it was my first song, so it wasn't very good. But um, this is my first official song that I've like, writ like written and published and recorded. And released. And so yeah. what's that journey been like for you this year? Um, it's been pretty crazy because when I played it at my school last year for our Remembrance Day Assembly, um, everyone was telling me how good of a job I did and how proud they were of me and I was like this isn't I really appreciate it but this is my story and I wanted to just put it out into the world and it's just been nice to know that people have heard his story. Okay so if people want to find you or listen to this song where can they do that? Um, my song is on YouTube and my YouTube channel is Ains McKinnis Music and my Instagram for my music stuff is Ains underscore, Ainsley underscore Sings. Wonderful. Okay, so taking us out of this week's show is Ainsley McGinnis, the hero in you. And we're going to put up all of your links on this video that goes out on social. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ainsley, from school, no less. I really appreciate it. It's no problem. Thank you so much for having me. In September 2008, Master Corporal Mike Tronner was deployed with 3rd Battalion Royal Canadian Regiment, November Company of Garrison Padawawa, to Kabul, Afghanistan, to defend our country and to fight the war on terrorism. On December 5, 2008, while on foot patrol in the Pantway District, he stepped on a remote detonated IED. This IED was powerful enough to destroy a large vehicle. Mike survived the blast, however, he received catastrophic life-altering injuries. Not only did he survive, but after months of rehabilitation, he has adapted and conquered. This is Mike's story. We say our goodbyes, choke the tears back before they fall. Keep it short and sweet There's no need to drag it on It's your first full-out war What should we expect? We know someone gets hurt We just don't know who yet You've gone there before Just not something like Conversations is that you called Catching faint glimpses from across the world The night seemed to drag on the quiet too loud But I knew when you'd come home you would be 
That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify for extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.